from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our first scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. You can find that in the second section of your Pew Bible, page 15, if you'd like to follow along. Hear now the word of God for you and for me. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food from the, for themselves. Jesus said to them, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, we have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves, and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds and all ate and were filled. And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 baskets full. And those who ate were about 5,000 men and women besides the women and children. Thank you, Khaleesia. Our second text is from the Gospel of Luke. It's the 12th chapter, verses 16 through 21. You can follow along in your own Bible or on page 70 in the Pew Bible if you would like. Again, Luke 12, uh, verses 16 through 21 often called the parable of the rich fool. Then Jesus told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there will I store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich toward God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Let us pray. Lord, break open this word afresh to us this day so that we may hear clearly from you amidst so much noise, so much chatter, so much distraction. We give you this time knowing that you will show up and speak to us. And for that, we say thank you. In Christ's name, amen. There is a woman named Emma who is the epitome of the modern-day juggler. She's maintaining a thriving professional career. She's raising two children. She's a supportive wife of her husband and his career. She volunteers and serves in the community. And on top of all of it, she's caring for her elderly parents whose health situation is becoming more and more complex. Maybe you know someone like Emma, or perhaps you are someone like Emma, uh, burning the candle at both ends. Emma's husband and children and colleagues and friends recognize the tiredness in her eyes. Some are concerned about burnout, but she continues to live in the shadow of her stalwart mantra, there's so much to do and I need to do it. One day as she was preparing dinner for both her children and her parents, she got a call from one of her closest friends. That friend expressed that she was concerned about her mental health, about her physical health, about her emotional health, about her spiritual health. She expressed her concern that she was going uh, to burn out, and she invited her to share in a cup of coffee the next day. Immediately, Emma thought about the to-do list for the next day. She thought about her calendar for the next day, but something came over her where she said yes. She cleared her schedule to meet her friend for coffee. Her friend talked about self-care and began to share with Emma her own experiences of self-care, not as an act of weakness, but actually as an act of strength, an act that builds resilience and courage to face the challenges of the day. She shared with her how she viewed self-care as a gift from God that empowers her and equips her to be who the person God's calling her to be, to do the things that God is calling her to do, to love the people God is calling her to love. Something came over Emma that night. Instead of tending to her to-do list, she drew a bath and then picked up a book that she'd been meaning to read for months, sat in her reading chair, whose form almost forgot the form of her body. It had been so long. And she lit a candle and she read. She had a conversation with her husband that night and said, things need to change. I need to do a better job of saying yes to what I need to say yes to and no to the things I need to say 
no to. And in that moment, she made a decision that she was going to move toward self-care, that she was going to do the things that she needed to do to build that kind of resilience, that kind of strength, that kind of clarity that comes when we are at our best mentally, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. If Instagram is any indication of what's popular, and some people believe it to be so, there are 66 million posts right now on the gram with the hashtag self-care. Self-care is quite popular these days, and I want to be clear on what I'm talking about when I talk about self-care. Self-care at its best is the action that we take or the actions that we take to strengthen our mental, physical, spiritual, and emotional health, but not just as an end to itself. But we take these moments of self-care in order to be equipped to meet the challenges of the day, to meet what is in front of us. You see, self-care can disintegrate into self-centeredness. Self-care can disintegrate into self-centeredness if the actions we take serve as a way to excuse ourselves from the vocational responsibilities of our lives that move us away from empathy or from the responsibilities that are in front of us that God has placed in our lives, those vocational responsibilities that God has given us, self-care can devolve into self-centeredness. And the way we know the difference is through intention and outcome, I think. Do I intend that these actions that I'm taking in the name of self-care, do they build resilience, do they build strength so that I may be prepared to do what I'm called to do? Or do these actions serve as an escape or lead to neglect of my vocational responsibilities? Now, Christian communities throughout cultures and throughout time uh, are quick to point out the numerous times that that Jesus practiced self-care. Now, for the record, the phrase self-care is not in the Greek New Testament. But there are moments where we can identify Jesus taking time Time for rest, time for meditation, time for prayer. He did so not in order to escape his vocational responsibilities, but he did so in order that he would be more equipped to fulfill them. He engaged in self-care so he'd be ready for what God was calling him to do. A great example of this is in the text that Calicia read for us this morning from the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. This story immediately follows the death of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. Jesus, we're told by the Gospel writer, got into a boat. He rowed off from shore into a deserted place, presumably off the coast, out into the Sea of Galilee. We also presume that he was grieving for the, for he had just heard that his cousin was executed. 
He was killed. We presume that he was there to pray and to meditate and to commune with God. That he took time for that kind of care. But then Matthew tells us that there were people basically running up and down the shoreline and the coastline trying to get Jesus' attention as he's out there taking this time for himself. And Matthew tells us, and this is subtle but I think so important, he rose back to them. And Matthew says that he began to heal the sick and the infirmed. And then when 5,000 plus people gather, he, he takes five loaves of bread and two fish and creates this magnificent feast to feed everyone who is there. You see, the self-care in which Jesus engaged in the middle of the Sea of Galilee had a purpose. It had a purpose. It built resilience and strength for the ministry to which he was called, to the life he was called to live. As we press on this morning, I, I want to take the conversation in a different direction, but holding on to this distinction between self-care and self-centeredness, where, where authentic self-care is not just for the sake of oneself, but it's for the vocational responsibilities that we're called to embrace whereas self-centeredness is just escaping from those responsibilities, which leads to a lack of empathy and a lack of care for our neighbor. If you look in the bulletin, you'll see that my sermon title is What the Eye Sees, and I'm playing here a little bit. It's not the word for the body part called the eye, E-Y-E. I'm using the pronoun I here on purpose. The pronoun I refers to you and to me, and I would suggest that in, auth in authentic acts of self-care, the I sees beyond oneself. In authentic acts of self-care, the I sees beyond one's self. The I sees all who will benefit from our self-care. The eye sees all who will benefit from our self-care. Just as Jesus' self-care saw beyond himself, he saw the people on the shore, he saw the sick, he saw the infirmed, he saw the hungry. That self-care was in service to those folks on the shoreline. And he comes back refreshed and whole to meet the challenges of the day. In self-centeredness, you never row back to shore or you wait till everybody goes home and the sick and infirmed and hungry are no longer in your sight. You see, the eye in self-centeredness is not concerned with their well-being, with the vocational responsibility to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I think this is precisely what's going on in the parable Jesus told us in Luke 12. Now before we jump into it, I, I just want to acknowledge something because I'm fully aware of who I'm preaching to this morning, that we are a people uh, that have been taught the value of savings, right? 
We've been taught the value of saving, the prudence and wisdom in preparing for our retirement or preparing for a rainy day. We have all been encouraged to fund 401ks and 403bs and 529 plans and the like. In fact, our older son, Johnny, we started uh, his 529 plan about 21 years ago as of yesterday. And the money's all gone his junior year. <laughs> so it seems at first glance that this quote-unquote rich fool is just doing something that we're all taught to do. The man has done very well. He has created wealth. In fact, his bumper crop has exceeded his capacity to store it. The rich man got richer. And by all accounts, he is simply trying to be at best a good steward and at worst a saver, which is not a bad thing to do. But even so, God in Jesus' parable calls this man a fool. Why? Why? I mean, after all, it can be argued that the wealthy farmer demonstrates wisdom and responsibility. With a flourishing farming enterprise, his land yields such abundance that the existing storage is found wanting. And, and so he strategizes to dismantle his, his barns to build bigger ones so it can accommodate this great uh, size of wealth and grains and goods. This is a foresighted plan. And it ensures for him substantial savings for the future, setting the stage for a secure and enjoyable retirement during the sunset years of his life. What is foolish about that? What's foolish about that? Why does Jesus call this man a fool? He calls this man a fool, I believe, not because he has created wealth and resources. That's not why he's a fool. He calls this man a fool not because he is intent on saving. It's not why he calls him a fool. He calls this man a fool not because he enjoys life and seeks to be merry. Remember what it says in John 10.10. 10. Jesus says, I've come to give you life and give it to the full. Life should be merry and enjoyed. No, he is a fool because he puts himself at the center of the story. He's a fool because he puts himself at the center of the story. What could be perceived, now follow me here, what could be perceived as self-care, right? Savings for one's physical needs into the future has actually disintegrated into self-centeredness because this I, this man, sees nothing but himself. He sees nothing but himself. I want to look back at the text, and if you're inclined, you can open your pew Bible to page 70 and, and follow along, or your own Bible if you have it with you. You don't have to do that. But, but in this parable, the first thing that you notice is that this man is not in conversation with anyone but himself. He's not talking to his spouse. He's not talking to his kids. not talking to his financial advisor. He's not talking to God. Beware if you ever get in a place where you're not talking to anybody and you're making plans. Because we need each other. 
We need the wisdom and insight from others. But this man doesn't think he needs it. He's having a conversation, literally, with himself. He thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. You press on and you begin to count how many times he uses the pronoun I. Just in about two or three verses. What should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns, build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Six times the pronoun I shows up. He cannot see beyond the I. Not only does he talk to himself in the moment, but he also imagines, and this is where it gets comical, he imagines a conversation he'll have with his future self. Soul, he says, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. He has no gratitude to express to God. He has no gratitude to express to those farm workers that we presume also work the land. And he certainly does not express any sense of moral or ethical responsibility to see these resources serving others beyond himself. I mean, he doesn't even mention children or grandchildren or family or friends. This guy's all about the eye, and he only sees himself. This isn't self-care so that others will be blessed by his work and wealth and savings. This is self-centeredness that cannot see beyond the eye. Now, in a very interesting twist, as it often occurs in Jesus' teachings, the man who only wants to have a conversation with himself is forced to have a conversation with God. God says, you fool. Don't you know that your life is demanded of you? The word we translate from the Greek uh, word to the English word demanded uh, actually means, literally means demand back. It's like somebody who loans me a book and six months go by and they say, hey, can I get the book back? That is not so much of a demand, it's an ask, but that's the sense here, is that the book doesn't belong to me, I have to give it back. Not demanding it because it never was, never did belong to someone else, but be precisely because it did. And that's the same concept here. That this man's life doesn't belong to him. It belongs to God. And so to all the resources that he has been put in charge of. And God demands it back. And this is one of the great challenges, I think, in the Christian life, especially those who take the Bible seriously and take Jesus' word seriously. Because every now and again, there is a moment of judgment. We're still living in the shadow of the 60s, I'm okay, you're okay kind of spirit. But there's days of reckoning that, that await those in the scriptures and days of reckoning for us. And there, there's a day of reckoning here. Where one day, God, as we draw our last breath, will have a conversation with us and demand our life back. And the question is, have we seen beyond the eye? We had another incredible trip uh, to Kenya, visiting our partners in Nairobi and 
Neary County. And, and one of our partnerships is with students at the Mount Kenya Academy. And those who've been around First Pres for a while know that that partnership is longstanding. Many students come, in fact, to Atlanta to study at the Westminster schools for a couple weeks. They come here to serve in our community ministries and, and worship with us. And, and these students at the Mount Kenya Academy, uh, some of these students are part of a business club that run a microfinance program that we have funded uh, with an initial gift, uh, just a few thousand dollars that's now grown into $26,000. Uh, there are 30 women in particular who have accessed uh, these microfinance loans, very low interest. These are women who are not looking for a handout, but looking for a hand up so that they can be self-sustaining, they can be entrepreneurs and run their businesses. 30 of these women are in a church in a town called Chaka. It's sort of a crossroads town in Neary County. Uh, and because it's a crossroads town, there's a, a huge marketplace, and we got to be there for a couple of days, and we got to see some of the women who, who uh, sell wares and commodities and, and, and farmers and, 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 and salon uh, parlor uh, owners and, and, and convenience store owners, these women who are providing a life not just for themselves, they're accumulating wealth, not just for themselves, but they're also accumulating it for their kids sending them to school, paying their fees, tithing to their church. The Chaka Church is actually in their own little capital campaign right now. And they're giving. But one of the most compelling things that I learned on this particular trip, because I met many of them about six years ago, but I, we had come to find out as a team that these 30 women have created a little kitty, a little fund of their own, a little fund of their own. So that when the weather is not good and the farms are not producing, those women who have little plots and have farms, they have some resources to help pay back their loan or put food on the table. Or, or perhaps a business uh, had some sort of catastrophic event, a fire or supplies couldn't get to them. This money bridges the gap. So just imagine this, these women entrepreneurs, right, are accumulating this wealth, accumulating these resources and they see beyond the eye. They see beyond the eye. They see beyond the eye. They embrace their vocational responsibilities. They give gratitude for God, to God for what they've been put in charge of. They practice authentic self-care as they do save and as they do make a better life for themselves and their families, but they continue to look to the shoreline. They continue to row to the shoreline and they see beyond the eye. And that's the point I want to convey to all of us this morning. There is nothing wrong with making money. There's nothing wrong with accumulating wealth. There's nothing wrong with saving. There's nothing immoral about 529 plans. But there is something wrong with keeping it all. There is something wrong with not leveraging those resources and seeing beyond the eye. There's something wrong with not giving gratitude to God and gratitude to those who have helped us accumulate our wealth to make a life for ourselves. There's something wrong if we cannot see beyond the eye. 
And as I said, there will be a reckoning in our own personal histories. There will be a day when we have that conversation with God, where God invites us to give an account for how we lived, how we stewarded everything that God put us in charge of. And my hope and my prayer for each and every one of us is that, that we do learn even in greater ways, what it means to see beyond the eye, so that when that time comes and when that conversation happens, we can hear the words that so many of us long to hear from Christ himself. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Amen.